0: Well, hey, good morning, everybody. So good to be with you here today. Um, I grew up watching. I feel like I'm talking about my childhood a lot lately in sermons. Sorry if that's a trend, but it's going to continue today, and then we'll hopefully move on. But when I was a kid, we had a very limited number of TV channels available to us, and there was, I think, three or four or something like that most of my childhood. And that did not mean that I spent less time watching TV, um, then, you know, it's like, oh, there's nothing on. I'll just go play. I did a lot of that, a lot of playing, a lot of, you know, things like that. But it also meant that if I wanted to just chill and watch TV, I spent a significant chunk of time watching old movies. And specifically, um, I mean, all kinds of old movies, but old musicals. I grew up watching these old musicals, and I would watch, you know, we'd, we'd, they'd be playing these things constantly on TV. It'd be like Oklahoma or singing in the rain, or, you know, I watched Sound of Music a bunch of times. I don't know if that was on TV or uh, VHS tape or something, but we watched these musicals a ton. I spent a significant part of my childhood watching musicals, and I feel like I was given um, unreasonable expectations that at some point in my life I would be in a situation that would require me to burst into song, you know, like I'm just, I, I, you know, this is how it happens in the movies. People are just having a conversation and all of a sudden they're singing and all of a sudden in the background there's people dancing and a whole chorus of people joining them in song. I really feel like I was, so not really, I'm kind of joking here, but led to believe that bursting into song might be something that would happen uh, at any given moment in my adult years and I'm still waiting for that to happen. That has not happened yet. Um, the only time it's happened in fact is like baseball games and church. You know, we we do that together in church, but typically this is not something that is included in our everyday life experience, but when you look at the Christmas story, specifically in the Gospel of Luke, you see so many people singing. Singing is something that, that when Christmas was brought into the world, when Christmas was introduced into human history, it came with song, and for the next four Sundays, counting, counting today and then the next three Sundays after this one, we're going to be talking about these Christmas songs recorded for us in the Gospel of Luke. And there are, there's this Mary's song is what we're going to be looking at today. Next week, we'll talk about Zechariah, John the Baptist's father and his prophetic you know, song that he responds to when God opens his mouth and he's able to speak again and regain the power of speech. Um, after the Christmas story, there, Jesus is brought to the temple, and there's this, older, this, this elderly gentleman named Simeon who's been waiting his whole life to meet the Messiah, and he responds in this prophetic song. And then, of course, on Christmas Eve, we're going to be talking about the angels and this song composed by angels to celebrate the Lord's birth. And so all these songs accompany the, the Christmas story. It's a, it's a really interesting part of of Christmas and in this time of year in the celebration. And so it's no wonder that Christmas is still associated with song, right? This is there's is no other holiday more connected with music than Christmas. Like I was trying to think of another holiday that's like the distant second and I I don't I don't know. Maybe 4th of July there's some patriotic songs or something, but this is like this is unique amongst all you know, kind of human celebrations that we have so many different songs, and I know that in a, a group of people, those of you watching online, those of you here in the room, that there's a lot of opinions about Christmas music, right? Some of you are just all about it. You love the Christmas music, and I would put myself kind of more in that category, honestly. Um, some of you would be kind of indifferent, yeah, I can take it or leave it, not a big deal, um, but then, of course, there's a very vocal minority who hate Christmas music. Like, they just, I don't like Christmas music. Some of those songs are really bad. And I'll agree with you on some of the songs, right? There's some really, really bad ones. I don't want to ever hear Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer ever again in my life. I'm fine if I never hear that one again. Or that last Christmas I gave you my heart, but the very next day you gave it away. This year, save me from tears, I'll give it to someone special. What does that even mean? What does that even mean? Anyway. Anyway. It's fitting, though, that this holiday that was born into song, born with song, would still be associated with special music. And so today is the beginning of this series we're calling Heaven and Nature Sing, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 39 in a few moments, so you can go ahead and get ready there. I'm going to give you a lot of background before we get into this, so we can get caught up to speed and just jump right into verse 39 and know what we're going to be talking about here. So introduction, first of all, just to the Gospel of Luke and to the Gospels in general. One of the first things they teach you in Bible college, I remember sitting down early on in my Bible college experience, one of the first lessons you learned about the New Testament is that the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, put together make this account of the life of Jesus. It's the history of Jesus' earthly life and ministry, and they together form this historical account of Jesus, but there's four of them which is helpful. We can compare, uh, kind of put the stories together. There's a book you can purchase called The Harmony of the Gospels that does that exact thing, or you can even look that up online, Harmony of the Gospels, and it'll weave the stories together. So you can see, oh, this in Luke happened here in John, and you can kind of compare them together. But each of the Gospels were written with different audiences in mind, we believe, scholars believe, um, Matthew was written with more of a Jewish audience in mind and written, you know, using the same source materials and telling the same stories of Jesus' life uh, for the most part, but, but telling, kind of speaking directly to a Jewish audience and telling them about the life of Jesus. We believe Luke was written more for the Greek audience, that there, in the early days of the church, there were so many people coming to Christ from this Greek culture. And so Luke puts this orderly account together. We're told in Colossians that Luke was a physician he was a doctor, and he puts this account together of Jesus' life based on all of his research, talking to the original people who were involved in the stories, and then tells the story of Jesus in Luke, and then he goes on to tell the story of the early church in the book of Acts, also written by Luke. But because he's speaking to this Greek audience, we have this kind of orderly put-together um, account of Jesus' life, in this very well thought through. Luke, as a physician, takes particular note of Jesus' miracles where he's healing somebody, and he'll talk about, you know, what the malady was, what the illness was that the person. He'll give details there um, where some of the other Gospels will just talk about it in a more general sense. Luke gives the details about what specifically they were suffering with and things like that. But written to this Greek audience, to these Christian, these new Christians without all the Jewish background and the Old Testament understanding, um, he, he brings into his account of the Christmas story the Songs of Christmas, that the Greek audience maybe in particular would appreciate the poetry and the music that came with the, the beginning of the, the story of the church and the story of Christian faith. And so now when we get to Luke chapter 1 where, where Luke, the doctor, is writing his account. And the verses right before the ones we read are the ones where Gabriel announces to this young teenage girl named Mary that she is going to be the mother of Jesus that something miraculous is going to happen with her and the power of the Holy Spirit will come upon her and she's, gonna, she's going to become pregnant and give birth to the one who will be great and who will save people from their sins. And Mary is, of course, shocked. She's taken aback by this news, but then says, let it be. Yeah, what you've said, uh, count me in. I want to be a part of that. And in this situation, she was betrothed to Joseph But it was this one year period of time before the wedding, the bride price had been uh, paid. They'd entered this kind of legally binding arrangement where Joseph and Mary had been promised to each other by their families. There, There were real consequences if this was broken off at this point, but they didn't live together during this betrothed period of time. So it was a serious problem or would have been for Mary a serious problem during this time to become pregnant. We're talking shame, we're talking legal consequences, maybe even stoned, maybe even stoned to death by the men in her village for this. But Mary showed this incredible faith to say, yes, let it be, knowing everything that would go along with that probably would never be believed by the villagers in her town of Nazareth. We know that it took an angel speaking directly to Joseph before Joseph continued to go along with this plan to marry her. That his thought was he was going to just divorce her privately and try not, not to make a big scene about it. But it took an angel appearing to Joseph to say, No, you should continue with this marriage. She faced this incredible, difficult task, incredibly difficult task, but she said, Let it be just like you've said to the angel. And then this is where our story picks up. So Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 39, and we're going to read down to verse 56. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, Blessed. for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to her fathers, to Abraham, to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and return to her home. So let's talk about what we just read there. We see Mary visiting her cousin Elizabeth. That one of the signs that the angel Gabriel told Mary was that, hey, one of the re- one of the ways you will know this is true, that this is gonna happen to you, is that your cousin Elizabeth, who was told she would never be able to have children, she's been barren, she is also carrying a miraculous child, and you should go and visit her. And so Mary visits her, which also probably Is very convenient when you're facing a lot of heat at home. For your news, when she spends three months going to visit her Elizabeth, which Elizabeth's late in her pregnancy, and it's also probably very helpful to have a a younger person to help out around the house when you're expecting. And so, there's this greeting happens that you know several day journey perhaps between where where Mary lived and where she was visiting Elizabeth. And after that long journey, they stay and have this time together. And Elizabeth, the, the John the Baptist, this you know child that she's carrying leaps in her womb, and she sees this and experiences this not just as all oh, the baby's excited, or maybe it was something I ate or whatever, but that even the baby's kind of the, the Elizabeth's filled with the Holy Spirit, and she's she's um, speaking out to Elizabeth or to, to Mary and blessing her. And she says these words like, wow, what an amazing thing that the mother of my Lord should come to me. The baby in my womb leaped for joy, she says. And then Mary um, responds with what is called, the header in my Bible says the Magnificat. And this is what it's known in in church history, church tradition. If you're looking at art, uh, old Christian art, you see the Magnificat. It sounds like the name of a cat from the Andrew Lloyd Webber Broadway show Cats, you know, if you're looking for a name for your kitten and you're just struggling, you're not sure, it's like, I want to have a good name for this kitten. I mean, I might suggest this one, Magnificat. But what it comes from is not, has nothing to do with cats. It ha- comes from the Latin words, first words in the prayer in Latin. So for many years, the Christians will be reading from the Latin translation of Scripture, and it begins with this word, Magnificat. In our English translations, it is Uh, translated, my soul magnifies the Lord. So the opening words from the Latin are where this prayer gets its title, the song gets its title. It is a triumphant song. Mary is not, she's, you know, thinking about her assignment, we spent some time talking about this, that that she's going to bear a child and there's going to be suspicions about her in her village now. In this very honor and shame-based culture, people are going to look at her with some side eye from there on. Like, we... There's a story about you, but this is a really difficult assignment she's going to be facing. And think about like a teenage girl with her expectations for life and how life is going to go for her dreams and, you know, someday I'll grow up and, you know, what, so I'll have kids of my own someday. And she's thinking about how she thinks her life will go and she meets this fork in the road brought into her life by an angel where now everything is going to be different. Like just erase that whole, all the expectations and dreams you had for your life, the way you thought it was going to go. Here's a curveball being thrown your way. And she's not facing this challenge and this new um, story that she's being given with suspicion or she's not begrudging. She's welcoming it. And she, she lifts up her voice in this triumphant, amazing song. And this song is full of Old Testament references to the Scripture. She's quoting Scripture all over the place. She's, and, and there's Psalms and, you know, all these different uh, prophetic kind of things that she's saying where you get a sense just by reading her prayer that Mary knew her Bible. Like Mary had this really deep well of Bible knowledge. Mary had her heart and mind full of Scripture so that when she was in this situation— She responds with the words of Scripture. It's sort of become a part of her heart and her mind that when you cut her, she bleeds Scripture, so to speak. She is so internalized God's Word that it just is there for her when she needs to put words to how she's feeling in this moment. She responds with many of God's words. And likely during this time where she's traveling uh, to visit her cousin Elizabeth, you know, when you're on a long journey, you're on a long drive, you're sitting on an airplane, you're, you're in the car, and you've just got lots of time to think, that she likely, her mind went to another miraculous birth story that we have recorded for us in 1 Samuel, which is the story of Hannah, Samuel's mother, Hannah, who also was not able to have children. And she gets this, you know, incredible blessing from God where she gives birth to this son, Samuel, and then gives birth to, to children after Samuel as well, and she's, and Hannah responds with this song in 1 Samuel, I believe it's chapter 2. And if you line up that song with Mary's song, they are very similar. It's probably the most similar out of all the you know, references that Mary uses that she was definitely, or most likely referencing Hannah because those songs are very, very similar. And she starts out with these words that my soul magnifies the Lord. My soul is taking God and who he is and magnifying it. Her soul is magnifying it. If you think about magnification, you are not changing the actual size of whatever you are magnifying, but what you are doing is changing the size of it in your view. You are enlarging your view of it. And when she says magnifies, it's this idea of continual, ongoing magnification. She is magnifying the Lord and her spirit is rejoicing in God, her Savior. And the structure of the song, the way the song goes, if you look at verses 46 to 49, Mary starts very personally. She says, this is what God has done for me. This is who God is. is. This is what God has accomplished for me. And she says that my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. It's like my life is very humble. My life is very simple. But from now on, People from generation to come we're going to call, are going to call me blessed. He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And then in verse 49, she expands to think about who God is more broadly and what God has done. Who God is and what he's done. So I'm going to look at a few things more in detail from this, uh, from this song and a couple of kind of takeaway things. And I'm going to ask you questions. I'm going to ask you three different questions for you to think about that I hope will help you apply what we're looking at today um, in this scripture. And the first thing I want to note about Mary's prayer, Mary's song, the Magnificat, is her sense of wonder and astonishment that God is doing what God is doing and that she gets to be a part of it. She is blown away by that. My soul continually magnifies the Lord. In the Greek, we have this... This continual language here, if we all understood Greek, we, could, we would see that in the Greek New Testament here. But because of God's work, her soul is magnifying God because of the personal work that he's done and then globally who he is and then even what he has done for his own people or what he's done for her people. And I think if we really understand what God has done for us personally and what God has done for his people collectively, we should also be amazed regularly. The fact that we get to be a part of what God is doing in this world, and and there's a personal reflection of that, that God redeems people, he saves people, he gives people life and hope, and we get to, to receive that for ourselves and then be agents of God's grace to the rest of the world, that should blow us away the way it did for Mary. Mary's amazed. She's in awe and wonder. She's so grateful. Her heart is full of gratitude at how amazing God is that God would include us in his plans and that there would be personal implications of that and then global and implications of that as well. So here's the question for this, what we're talking about. When was the last time you were amazed by God's work and the fact that you get to be a part of it? When was the last time you were blown away by what God is doing and what God has done? And and I want to suggest that if if it's been a long time, if you're like, I'm not sure how long it's been, I'm sure I have at some point, can't point to a specific time, then I would encourage you to magnify the Lord. I would encourage you to, to look for what God is doing in this world in your own life and in the lives of people around you. That perhaps if it's been a long time since you've been amazed or in wonder and awe at what God has done and his goodness, that maybe you haven't been looking closely enough. Maybe you haven't been looking um, it just on the, on the hunt for what God is doing so that you can glorify him and praise him and have this sense of awe and wonder. What Mary is praising God for is God's character and his deeds, and she mentions in this prayer many things. There's all these attributes of of God listed, and here's, here's, if we took all the ones out of this prayer, it's this. He's mighty. He's holy. He's merciful. He's strong. He fills us. He helps us. And he keeps his promises. We see this in the song here, starting at verse 49. He is mighty who has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers to Abraham and his offspring forever. He is mighty, he is holy, he's merciful, he's strong, he fills us, he helps us, he keeps his promises. When you think about this list of God's character traits, I wonder if there's any of them that really resonate with you this morning. If you're thinking about which of those things, mighty, holy, merciful, strong... Which one of those are you most grateful for right now? Another question for you to consider. You don't have to answer out loud, but I just want to put that out there. Which one of those characteristics of God are you most grateful for right now? Mary is full of gratitude. She's worshiping and praising God, and she's so thankful for who God is. Which one of those stand out to you when you think about who God is for you? We see a number of divine reversals happen in this passage of Scripture where where Mary says, the way things normally work in the world, now they are upside down. She, she references them that he has shown, he's scattered the proud. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones. He's the hungry, the people who are used to going hungry, and the expectation in the society and culture that there are just people who will be hungry sometimes. That's just the way it is. There's the class system and the very wealthy people, and then the people who are living in poverty and who should be content to live their lives in poverty, Those people who are used to going hungry have now been filled with good things. But he says the rich, she says the rich who are used to having things go their way, they go away empty. She mentions this role reversal here, this divine reversal that God has done. And we we notice several things from from this reversal of of things, kind of God's economy, God's way of doing things It's very different from the world's way of doing things, that It makes us think of a couple of things. One one is that God um, has a real heart for the poor. Like people who are living in desperate poverty, like God, God loves them. God loves all people, but there's particular application to people who are living in desperate poverty where that message of who God is and what God does for people resonates in a way that sometimes wealth is an obstacle for that resonating with the wealthy. When, when Jesus in his ministry, if you look at who he ministered to and who he spent time with, you see that Jesus was not trying to reach out to the most powerful, you know, kind of heavy hitters in society and the, the people with all the influence, that, that Jesus spent time with these vulnerable people who were on the margins. And that when Jesus even began his ministry in Luke chapter 4, scripture tells us that he unrolled this, the, the, the role of scripture in the synagogue and announced from the book of Isaiah, his ministry to the poor, that, that good news is coming to the, for, the poor. In fact, let me look that up real quick. Luke chapter 4, that won't be on the screen behind me, but Jesus came to Nazareth and stood up in the synagogue. He unrolled the scroll from the book of Isaiah, and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind." to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That when Jesus did his work in this world and in his ministry, he had a particular outreach and particular ministry to people who were living in desperate poverty. And people who are economically poor, who are living on the outskirts of society in many ways, are, are in a unique position to rely on God because their choices are limited. For those of us who live in comfort and in our In our modern, you know, comforts, which I'm incredibly grateful for, sometimes we can look to those for our sense of security rather than relying on God. And there are a lot of people in the world, even today, that that just are in a position where they have no choice but to rely on God, and so they have great faith in God. And in Mary's announcement, Mary's song here, the rich who are used to having things go their way, are not put in a position of privilege when it comes to access to God. That the way things work in the rest of our world is not the way things work in the kingdom of God. John Piper says this about this passage. He says, It's clear from Mary's words and from the whole Bible that God is not partial to the rich, the powerful, or the proud. How could God be partial to the things which in our world are more often than not substitutes for God rather than pointers to God? There's not a partiality that that God has in this world, and, and, and a further level, a kind of a deeper. Um, if we look at what she's saying in this passage, it makes us think of another aspect of this gap between the poor and the wealthy during Jesus' time. That a lot of a lot of the wealth that had been accumulated had been accumulated on the backs of the poor. The people were poor because the wealthy had had victimize them or put them in a position. And I, I know that this, this kind of rhetoric, what I'm saying, might sound like some of the political discussions that we have right now, and I don't intend it to sound that way if that's what it's sounding like. But th- th- during this, this period of human history, this gap between the wealthy and the poor was never wider. It was incredibly wide. And, and God had strong things to say to people who used injustice to gain wealth. To put people in a victimizing position to gain wealth, that, that justice was entering the world, that in fact Mary's song could have put her in huge trouble with the wealthy and the political establishment of her time. That she, What she was saying sounded very revolutionary, and in fact I've heard stories, and I don't know if this is true, I wasn't able to verify it, but someone said that in Guatemala back in the 80s, when there was a kind of a uprising of people living in poverty, that the, the Magnificat, this song itself was not allowed to be sung in Guatemala during, during this time because, of, because people viewed it as this kind of revolutionary way of speaking about God reversing the, the human order of things. One of the things we believe about Jesus is that Jesus is the ultimate justice bringer. Jesus is the ultimate, the the one who brings righteousness and truth into this world. And that this was beginning to happen with him arriving into this world. And Mary's recognizing that. That Mary is is acknowledging the fact that with Jesus comes justice. And that the people who are victimizing people to to gain wealth on the backs of people suffering, that that... God is not approving of that, and God will one day overthrow that. Mary takes a very humble view of herself. She says this in the opening part of her song, that he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. Mary, as someone who's experiencing you know, likely desperate poverty during her time, Knew that she wasn't anything special. She didn't bring anything uniquely qualifying to her situation to being able to be used by God in the way that she was being used by God. Mary did not bring any special qualifications, but she was playing a part in, in playing her part in God's work in this world in spite of her lack of qualifications. It wasn't because she was uniquely qualified or special. In fact, if you feel like you're uniquely qualified or special to be used by God, if you go like, "Yeah, God, if God picks me, he's got, you know, a really good person on his team. Like I've got, I think I have a lot to offer God." That thought process might make us more disqualified <laughs> to be used by God. The apostle Paul talking about this idea says that in 2 Corinthians 12 that his weakness, the fact that when he is weak, God is strong. His weakness puts a spotlight on God's strength. That God uses the weak to accomplish Great things. When I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul says, I'll glory in my weakness. I'll look at the things that I, that I, um, other people would glory in their strengths. I'm going to glory in my weakness because God gets more glory when He uses people like me. Our Catholic brothers and sisters and, and friends that have some unique beliefs about Mary that are distinct in the Catholic Church, and there's, there's, a few of them, and, and we're not going to get into all of them, but there's this idea of the immaculate conception that Mary never sinned in her life and that Jesus was born without sin because Mary was also born without sin. She was preserved from sinning, and so that's the kind of way of explaining how Jesus could be born into this world without, without sin, and that's not supported by Scripture. It's supported by the Catholic Church teaching, and, and we disagree with that. We don't find that in Scripture. And that after Mary's death, that her they have something called the Assumption of Mary, that she was physically, her body was physically taken up into heaven in a similar way to where Jesus was taken up after his resurrection. And again, another belief that we disagree with, um, and there's several of them where the Catholics have honored Mary and, and have this kind of theology built around Mary's life. And there's, in, in Protestant circles, this, this being a Protestant, you know, non-Catholic church, there's kind of two extremes. You can avoid Mary completely. You go like, we're uncomfortable with all that stuff, and so we, we don't talk about Mary very much. Or, of course, there's the, I think, the extreme that the Catholic Church has taken where it's adoring Mary and, and almost in a worshipful kind of way, um, praying to her and all these kind of things. And I, I don't think we want to lift her up above all the other people and characters of, our, of the story of redemption. Uh, in fact, I think there's something about studying the life of Mary, where if we look at her as a regular person, there's more takeaways for us. There's more uh, application to our own life. If we look at her as kind of uniquely qualified to be this special, the mother of Jesus, then it, it, it makes her life less um, able to emulate. It's, it's difficult for us to emulate a life like that of someone who was perfect. She was born without sin. No, she was a regular person who said, yeah, use me, God. This is an intimidating assignment, this is challenging, but she's someone who loved God and was willing to sign up for whatever God would have her do, including this challenging assignment of being the mother of Jesus. One of the um, commentators studying in preparation for the message, says this, with God there is no need to have an inferiority complex about how he may use us and what we bring to the task. More than being willing to go where God will take us is realizing that he can help us overcome whatever limitations we bring to the effort. Our world is all about what qualifications and what your resume is, and I think it's easy for us to apply that um, spiritually as well. Where we go, I'm someone uniquely qualified to be used by God as opposed to being someone who is willing to be used by God however he might seek to use you regardless of what you bring to the table. That none of us is uniquely qualified to be used in God's plan of salvation, plan of redemption, his amazing work that he's doing in this world. But the question I have for you is this, where have you mentally disqualified yourself from playing a part in God's work in this world? I think we do this. I think many people go like, man, I've, I've messed up too much. I, I, am, I struggle in ways that maybe other people, I don't think anybody else struggles the way I struggle. And so we disqualify ourselves from God's work in this world. We kind of take ourselves out of the equation. We say like, well, God uses specialer people than me. And I'm not one of those. I'll let God use the more important special people. And I think we need to get rid of that way of thinking. Don't mentally disqualify yourself from playing a part in God's work in this world. And if there's an area where you've done that, I hope you'll reconsider that thought. Mary is an example of a regular person who who was available to be used by God. And God used her life in in a way that still speaks out about her life years later, that all generations after would call her blessed because of the faith that she showed in God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time together. I thank you so much for the story of Mary and the lessons it has to teach us still today about how things are reversed in your world and and how the way things are in the world is not the way things are in your kingdom. And that you can use the humble and the regular um, to, to accomplish great things for your kingdom. Like regardless of what we bring to to bear on any given situation, Lord, you are faithful, you are good, and you accomplish your work, and we can be a part of that. Lord, may we always be amazed by that. (laughs) May it never be something that just becomes a a, a regular um, thing we take for granted, but may we always have hearts full of gratitude about how good you are, that you would use regular people like us, that you would not only give us salvation, but you would help us to be a part of extending that grace to other people. Lord, we thank you for who you are. When we worship you, we, we want to have hearts of awareness about you, our, our merciful, holy, good, strong God that fills us and provides for our needs and keeps his promises. Lord, we are so grateful for that reality, and we come to you on that basis, Lord, of who you are and who you want to be in our lives. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for this time together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.